Open big, open wide. No, we're not here to talk about dentistry. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about making a splash, hoopla, and hype. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. This is for the storytellers, the writers and filmmakers who feel called to depict the future in their fiction. I know it's exciting to show how things might fall apart, but human beings have a habit of living into what they expect. You can't ask people to desire things they can't imagine. If all society imagines is dystopia, they'll patiently accept it when the chance arrives. So instead of provoking horror shows, consider using your art to give the world better ideas. Thanks for what you do, and good luck. If you take a look at the most successful movies in the United States of all time, almost every single one of them is a superhero movie. Doctor, we're facing a potential global catastrophe. (laughs) All those I actively try to avoid. And if you look at the rankings of box office numbers, they're all oriented around opening weekend. The thing is... Opening weekend ticket sales are not a reflection of whether the movie's any good or not, because no one has seen the movie yet. Particularly in the pre-internet days, you went to the movie's opening weekend because of the hype, because of the ads on Thursday night television, because of the buzz, not because the movie was good or not. In the book industry, where I come from, the equivalent of this is, how did the book launch? Now, the book industry thinks that its customers aren't readers, its customers are bookstores. And the deal they have with bookstores is this. The bookstores can take as many copies as they want, and if they don't sell, they can send them back for a full refund. And lately, you don't even have to send the book back. You simply have to scan it, and then they trust you to discard it. And yes, you get your money back. This guaranteed sale shifts the risk to the book publisher. And for the longest time, the way book publishers communicated to bookstores that they were serious about a book, that they believed in a book, that the book was good and that they were going to promote it, was by how many copies they printed. Because it takes weeks and months to reprint a book. So if you don't print enough copies, well, then you're going to sell out. That's not good. So the calculus went like this. A book These days, a book might cost 20, 25 bucks, and it sells to the bookstore for about half that. Of the $10 that the publisher gets, $8 of it is profit, maybe seven if you're being conservative. That's a huge profit margin. And the book only costs about a dollar, dollar fifty to print, which means that you'd rather have some unsold books than run out of stock. So it all lined up, print a lot wasn't unusual for first print runs to be announced by book publishers, 100,000, 150,000 for a novel, all printed at the same time. But then when the supply chain problems hit, when COVID hit, when businesses were thrown into turmoil, when book publishing got turned upside down by the internet, the rules started to change. And the CFO figured out that the single best way to improve profitability was simply to discard fewer books. That if you printed 50,000 books instead of 100,000 books, 
Yes, you might sell out, but on the other hand, you might have to shred no books. And that instantly adds a dollar, dollar fifty per book unshredded to the bottom line. Instant profit. And so now the book industry is trying to figure out what to do. Because obviously, the best way to make sure you have no unsold books is to print no books at all. But if you print no books at all, you're not going to sell anything. What about opening big? In the record business, so many records were coming out during the heyday of FM radio and rock and roll that you only had a couple days to get the program director's attention. You only had a couple days to get what they called spins. If you got spins on the radio, you were more likely to get demand. If you got demand, you were more likely to get rack space at Target or Handelman. And so the record would begin to sell. Records that had two, three, four, five singles on them were rare indeed. That was the home run. The goal was just to get one single out of your album because then people would buy the whole album. Open big, get the spins, get on the playlist, get on the billboard charts, make sure your book is in big stacks at the bookstore, get on the New York Times bestseller list, which gets the book discounted at Barnes & Noble back when people went to Barnes & Noble. But all of these details begs the question, why do any of this in the first place? Why pay DJ's payola to get the spins on the week your record comes out? If the Wolfman was here, he'd say, get your ass in gear. Why hustle movie theater owners to make sure you're on an enormous number of screens and then run all of those ads on Thursday night before the movie has even been seen? Why print or at least pretend to print hundreds of thousands of copies of your book so that you can get lots of shelf space during that opening week. There used to be a really good reason for all of these things. But the purpose of this podcast is to help explain that opening big and opening wide, while it might be good for our ego, doesn't necessarily feed our art or even work in the long run for commerce. Let's go back to this idea of those Marvel movies the top movies of all time. If you go down the list, it's stunning. There's just one superhero movie after another, opening to 100, 200, 300 million dollars in ticket sales in one weekend. But it doesn't come free. You have to make a movie that costs a fortune. You have to load it up with movie stars in capital letters. And you have to figure out how to promise enough media and then buy that media to get on all of those screens that the movie theater owners are giving you. You do all those things at a cost, and the reason you have to do them is there's a finite number of movie screens, 4,000, 5,000 screens. That's a huge opening. That's not that many movie screens if you think about it. That's a huge opening. Something has changed because we're not going to the movies nearly as much as we used to. And it turns out that Netflix doesn't have a shortage of screens. Being on one Netflix screen, one Disney Channel screen, that's all you need. Now the race is no longer, how do you get the middleman to decide that you've got something that they want to give their scarce resource to? The race is to make something good enough and resonant enough that people watch it. And they're not going to race to watch it the first day. They don't need to. They've got plenty of other things to watch. If we think about music, it's exactly the same story. That 
it's really hard to do payola at Spotify. Spotify has room to play everything. Wolfman Jack had to decide, play this song or that song. But Spotify plays all the songs. Or if we think about the idea of shelf space at the bookstore, Amazon doesn't have a shelf space issue. Amazon sells every book. If you do a print-on-demand book with Lightning Source all by yourself with no publisher, it will look exactly the same on Amazon as one of my books do. There is no difference to the reader when they are deciding what to put their attention and their money behind next. And yet, all of these industries are still focused on the launch and the hype and the hoopla, on opening big and opening wide because they have to make a lot of different items. And every time they launch something, their launch team swoops into action. But their launch team can't stick with it because next week they have to swoop into action for the next movie, for the next book, for the next record. And so the scarcity created the system, the scarcity of screens and shelf space and frequency and airtime. That led to the whole idea of launch teams. Launch teams came along because the industry demanded new things and wanted new things that everybody else would be paying attention to. But as Chris Anderson's long tail has become more and more real, as hits become less valuable because worldwide hits, culture-wide hits are super rare indeed. What we have instead are localized hits, maybe regionally local, but more likely psychographically local, local to a tiny circle of people who care a lot. There's a website called justwatch.com, which learns a little bit about what you like and shows you what's on streaming tonight. And one of the ways you can use the site is by looking at the reviews each of the shows get. I'm fascinated by the shows that get the highest reviews. They are documentaries, shows that align with different spiritual and religious institutions, and movies from India. And that's because, I believe, the people who have chosen to watch those things love those things, and they're eager to tell other people about those things. And when we tell other people about something, it dramatically outperforms all of the hype and all of the hoopla of the Thursday night TV commercials. So the goal is not to launch big and launch wide. The goal is instead to find a smallest viable audience in whatever culture change you're trying to make, even if you're just trying to make it as a freelancer. And for those 10 people, the 10 people you started with, deliver something so irresistible and so remarkable that they can't go to bed tonight without talking about it. Because when we look at what's actually changing our culture, it's not Avengers movies. It's not movies that rocket up some bestseller list for a week and then fade away. No, what actually changes the culture, what actually really pays off, are the movies that didn't have big opening weekends, but in their fourth weekend had great numbers per screen. These are the books that are selling on the backlist a year, two years, five years after they came out. These are the records that we now call classic. These things happen not because they had giant opening weekends. Most of them didn't. They happen because they resonated with people 
people who would have missed them if they weren't there. They resonated with people who don't care what's new. They care about what matters. Thanks for listening to my rant. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I do love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or anything previous, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Love to hear from you. The questions keep getting juicier. Here we go. Hi, Seth. This is Lior Grepler from Telmond, Israel. I really enjoyed the previous episode where you had the story about Ms. Popcorn and how you gift wrapped your resume and kept on sending postcards from around the country. It reminded me of a previous episode where you had been running a summer camp and were giving out uh, these pink slips um, to encourage the employees at the summer camp. And some people you mentioned in that episode were rolling their eyes, but eventually it became a normal thing. So my question is, when you're doing something that goes against social norms in order to be remarkable, how do you overcome that potential internal resistance? Where do you get the strength to violate what might be culturally normal in order to become remarkable? Thanks so much. Thank you for this one, Lior. So I think there's some nuance here that's important because I don't believe it is appropriate to hype and hustle with people who don't want to hear from you or with work that isn't inherently generous. So in the case of the summer camp, where I was handing out the pink slips per Zig Ziglar to help motivate and connect people, I had the authority to do so because I was the boss. So the idea of marketing as an interruption is a little different when you are talking to people that you are not just trying to lead, but you are also their manager. And in the case of the Faith Popcorn story, it would have been inappropriate by my measure to have done what I did if Faith Popcorn hadn't had a meeting with me 
where she and I were both jumping up and down and she had said, let's work together. I don't believe that sending things over the transom over and over and over again is useful. A small aside, I was talking to a friend the other day and I explained to her what over the transom meant and she had never heard that expression. The transom was in the old days before air conditioning, the window above a door. And in an office building, it was common to leave that window open to have ventilation even when the office was closed. So the idea of over the transom was visiting an office where the door is locked and throwing your papers over the transom where they arrive, like spam, unbidden. And that gets to the other part of your question, which is how do we create something that is remarkable when it's going to challenge social norms? And just about everything that is remarkable challenges some social norm because it is not a social norm to talk about new things all the time. And so what we have to do is bring a sense not of, I need to get this attention for me, but I need to help the other person find something worth talking about so that they can enjoy the process of telling other people. And this is what is missing from most of the short-term ham-handed marketing that we see today is that people believe they're, quote, just doing their job, trying to get the word out, trying to earn a living, instead of saying, I have something here that you will benefit from sharing with other people. That's only going to be true not if we spin it, but if we actually build something that is worth talking about in the first place. Thanks for this one. Hi, Seth. It's Paula from Pittsburgh. Last week in your episode, Pathfinders and Failures, you used the term the fifth hammer. And I really like this term. I read about it in the practice, I think. So my question is, do you think that arts should be included in the education system? And do you think it could be considered the fifth hammer of education? So you have science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. STEAM. So that's the gist of my question. I would love to hear you talk about arts education. Thank you, Paula. I'm a big fan of the arts, but I think that there is a very big difference between teaching kids arithmetic, that is memorizing what four times four is, and teaching them math, which is helping them understand the structures behind the way numbers dance with each other. I also think there's a big difference between teaching a kid to memorize the fingerings for B-flat, getting them to play a scale over and over and over again until their eyes bleed, and helping them understand the theory, the magic, and the elegance of actual music. So STEAM is essential for our future, but we have to divorce that thinking from the authoritarian doctrinaire approach of memorization, command, and control, which is what so much of school is about. So yes, science, technology, engineering, arts, and math, all in service of solving interesting problems, in service of leadership, in service of challenging whatever status quo we are looking at. And yes, you also need to learn scales and arithmetic to do those things, but too often we push so hard for compliance that we forget that what we're really trying to do in school is train people to ask questions, train people to know how to look something up, as opposed to 
training them to memorize things and spit back to us what we already knew the answer could be. I have a short TED talk about this. I'm going to insert it at the end of this episode. Thanks. So my question for you is, what did you do to pay the bills as you figured things out? How did you live and survive um, for the year and a half that you were trying to get this business off the ground? Because surely even in 1984 dollars, $2,500 didn't sustain you for a year and a half. And what would you tell somebody who is experiencing similar rejection over and over again to do to survive financially until they actually hit success? Thanks as always, Nathan. Yes, I was not independently wealthy as a book packager. I was really struggling. And I think the struggle is one of the reasons why I tell these stories so much, because I know that most of us go through these kinds of struggles. In my case, I made ends meet in three different ways. The first one is I did a consulting project for a chain of nursing homes that involved visiting nursing homes and building a spreadsheet about a potential acquisition. It was terrible. It was terrible because nursing homes aren't really my thing. Acquisitions aren't really my thing. I was super lucky that I didn't have to make a living digging a ditch outside on a hot day, but it reminded me that I didn't want to do MBA sort of consulting work. The second thing I did was a project for my former employer in which I helped them bring a product to market because they were short of staff. And the third thing that I did was I launched a directory of law firms where it felt like a book, but it wasn't a book in the sense that I was building something for people to buy. All three of these projects were useful for me in two ways. One, yes, they helped pay the bills. I structured projects where I didn't have to lay out money or a lot of intellectual property in order to get paid. I just had to put in time and effort. And two, they were structured in a way that they were closed-ended in that I wasn't going to get myself sucked in to doing it for a living with a big staff so that I could continue focusing on the path that I wanted to follow. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. Here's that TED Talk. We'll see you next time. So for eight years, I, um, I played the clarinet growing up. Well, actually, that's not true. I took lessons, but I'm not sure I actually played the clarinet. I went to uh, hear Michael Tilson Thomas perform with a symphony orchestra, and there was a clarinetist playing a solo. And the first few notes were the middle C, the easiest note, the first note they teach you. And I realized, listening to that, that I had never actually played the clarinet. I had never once in my entire life played a single note that sounded like that note did. But all the years that I was taking lessons, no one sat me down and said, you know what? None of this matters. None of the notes and the songs and all that stuff we keep piling on for you to do matters if you can't play a single note that people actually want to hear. <laughs> and I spent a lot of time thinking about that. Why was it? Part of it was that I didn't care enough. I didn't care enough to put myself into it in a way that would touch another person. And part of it is the world that we are growing up in. Quick little experiment. Go ahead and raise your right hand just as high as you can, please. OK, now please raise it higher. 
Hmm, what's that about? I'll tell you what it's about. What it's about is that you learned at the age of four that teachers and parents and coaches and bosses would always ask for a little bit more. And so it's safer to hold a little bit back. It's safer to care just a little bit less. But now we live in this world where we get a chance to dance and to leap and to hack and to do things that touch other people, right? But we're so eager to add another tweet and do another thing and put another thing on the pile because it's safer. It gives us a way to protect ourselves. You know, we make the menu longer instead of making one dish that people are willing to cry, drive across town to buy. And so we end up with the hacker paradox, right? Number one, we need to care enough to connect, care enough to put ourselves at risk, emotional risk or any other kind of risk, to touch other people and to play one note that's worth hearing. But we also have to be brave enough to ship it before it's ready, because it's never ready. It's never the right time. Gutenberg launched the printing press when fewer than 8% of the people in Europe knew how to read. Carl Benz launched the car when it was against the law to drive, when there were no roads sufficient for cars, and when, of course, there were no gas stations or all-night drive-through liquor stores. <laughs> and so the question we have to ask, given the leverage that we've been given and the way our culture is so open to notes that matter is this. Yeah, we're probably going to succeed. The people in this room have succeeded beyond most people's dreams. That's a given. The question, as my friend Shaleen told me, is not that, but will you choose to matter? Will you choose to actually make music? Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. There's a big problem that's changing everything about the world as we know it. Carbon and the impact of humans on the earth. We talk about it with words like climate change and global warming. But there's just two really important things that you need to know about it. First, this is an overwhelmingly big problem. So much so that it's likely that you feel as though your choices don't matter in the face of it. Second, that overwhelming feeling that I just mentioned, it's intentional. It was put there by design. The industries that make the biggest environmental impact have a vested interest in you feeling overwhelmed and powerless. They've marketed, lobbied, and schemed to create that feeling in all of us. In short, We've been lied to. But here's the good news. There's a lot you can do to make a difference. And the other good news is that there's still time. The Carbon Almanac is a book and project about these problems and what we can do to solve them. It was created and run by volunteers on the premise that it's not too late, but none of us can fix this problem on our own. We need each other. There are many ways to get involved, but simply learning more is a great start. Here are three steps you can take. First, go to thecarbonalmanac.org and sign up for the Daily Difference emails. They give you a short thought and a practical action that you can take alongside thousands of others every day. Second, get the Carbon Almanac book. It's full of facts, articles, graphs, and art. It's beautiful and fun to engage with. It's all footnoted and fact-checked. And importantly, it's made by volunteers whose only agenda is to solve these systemic 
issues. You can find it wherever books are sold. Finally, since you're listening to a podcast, search for The Carbon Almanac wherever you're listening. You'll find The Carbon Almanac Podcast Network and a few shows featuring expert insight, discussion, inspiration, and ways to take action. There's even a show just for kids. Do what appeals to you. Just do something. There's still time to make a huge difference in the future of the planet, but we can't solve this on our own. Join us.